And Lord, we say thanks. Give us the grace to hear you and believe you and not refashion you into a person and a Savior that is more comfortable for us. Help us deal with you, Lord, as you actually are, as you exist, and relate to you and love you and be corrected and taught by you person to person as a disciple follows his teacher. In Christ's name I pray, amen. How many disciples of Jesus here this morning? Yeah? I don't presume that all of you are. Maybe some of you are on the fence or you're in that frightening category, and I'm not, I mean literally spiritually frightening once you realize it, where you think you're following Jesus and you're actually not. It happens. Jesus told some very serious parables about the surprises that will come on the final day. My pastor used to say, very clever man, I wish all of you could have met him. He used to say there will be two surprises in heaven, those who are there and those who are not. Make sure you find yourself in the first group. But if you are quite sure and you know from Christ Himself and a life filled with the fruit of Jesus Himself that you are His disciple, that means that on the front side you're committed to obeying Him no matter what He says, right? And it's not a, I'll hear it out and decide, right? Ready? You sure? It's not me, I'm just the messenger. And Luke 16 is one of the strangest stories that Jesus ever told. The first time I ever heard anybody dare to preach this was a missionary, a national pastor from Uruguay, and he opened the sermon saying, this is one of the most dodged passages in Scripture by every pastor and preacher in the world. And he's right. We don't seem to know what to do with it. It's a parable. It's immediately after the familiar and somewhat easy to understand parable of the prodigal son, where all the world is represented by those two sons, a rule keeper who thinks he's good enough for the father but is really far from him in his heart, and a rebel who at least has the honesty to tell his father, I want life without you. Because those parables are side by side, sometimes when people read the next parable, they try to find God again in one of the characters, and that's not the way this parable works. It's a shocking story that may make you believe that Jesus is actually on the side of wrongdoing and criminality. If you don't believe me, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, says this, He also said to the disciples, read slowly when you read the Bible, the previous, character, the previous parable, He was correcting the self-righteous people who were grumbling because Jesus welcomed sinners and taught them and ate with them. Now He has time alone with people like you his disciples, and he tells them a story. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. In other words, the rich man's possessions. And he called him and said, what is this that I hear about? You turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Is this a good day or a bad day for the manager? 
absolutely terrible. He's being fired. And the books are going to be opened. People get a reputation. Stories are swirling around. You know that guy you've entrusted so much of your estate to. You know he's cheating you, right? You know he's on the take, right? Well, the boss comes to believe it. And he says, we're done here. Bring me the books. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to, de- to dig and I am ashamed to beg. That's quite a guy, isn't it? You like this guy so far? Uh-oh, I'm out of a job. I was making a good living. I'm now going to be fired and... I don't want to dig. In other words, manual labor is beneath me. A desk job is easy to get used to. And if you've been just pushing paper around, and especially if you're on the take, to pick up a shovel, mm, hard work. He said, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Do you see the ploy here? He has a plot to not work. He's too proud to beg. He's too weak or too old or too lazy to work. So he says, I've got an angle. Con man always does. Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil, that's 800 gallons roughly of oil of fortune. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. See, debts in the ancient world were recorded in the hand of the debtor. That way you could never deny that that was your debt. Do you see what the guy just did? What did he do? Yeah. What did the manager do? What would you call that? Cheating. And I could show you very thick commentaries on my desk where serious scholars, I'm not a scholar, I'm just a pastor, try to make sense of this and make this less than what it obviously is. Say, maybe he's taking the interest off, maybe he's reducing his commission. They're trying to get him off the hook, and the hook won't move. He's cheating his boss by half. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. This guy didn't get as good a discount. (laughs) Con men sometimes go wrong by being piggish in their con. He's clever. And that's quite a story. Where's God in it? God's not in this story. It's just a story of criminality. It's a story of the way the world works. How many of you know that people cheat? Yeah, everybody clear on that? That's why we have things like contracts rather than handshakes, and sometimes even when there's contracts. Have you noticed? Did you lock your door this morning? Did you lock your car? When you lock your car, ladies, do you leave your purse on the front seat? No, not if you want to see the purse again. This is the way the world works, and Jesus is telling a story of the way the world works. Here comes the lesson. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, 
That's odd. What's that about? Well, I've had the occasion to stand around police officers who admire the cleverness of a criminal. You may have seen a movie years ago, it's quite, quite old now, but Leo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks made a movie called Catch Me If You Can of one of the greatest and most successful con men in American history. From the age of 16 to 21, Frank Abagnale posed as anything he pleased and got away with it. And he was so good that he has spent 40 years since working with legitimate corporations, including the FBI, teaching them how he got away with it and how current criminals still might. This master is, this boss is stepping back and saying, wow, that guy's good. He's being cheated, but he can't help admire, not the integrity. What is it that he's admiring? Look carefully at that verse. The shrewdness. Here's the lesson. Now Jesus breaks into the story to tell the disciples, the Christians, something very true and maybe hard to hear. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Did you catch that? Don't let the old language fool you. Jesus is saying people who don't know God at all are far more clever than Christians. They know how to get along. They know how to get ahead. They know how to take care of themselves. They are often shrewder, more clever than the what Jesus calls the sons of light, the disciples he's speaking to. This is a very Jewish way of speaking of two kinds of people, the sons of this world and the sons of light. Who are the sons of this world? People who don't know God at all, who don't take Him into account, who are not following Jesus. The sons of light are the disciples that are gathered around Him, and He's telling them something that seems a little bit insulting, but actually is quite true. You're not street smart. The people outside who aren't with us, they're much smarter than you are in a very special and particular way. And here's the instruction. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Just sit there for a second. Do you understand what he's saying? See, this parable is deliberately difficult and provocative because Jesus wants a light bulb to come on for his hearers. He told you a story where a boss seems to be commending a criminal, and Jesus speaks with not admiration, but with recognition that the man in the story he made up is actually quite clever, in fact, smarter in a very specific way than the men who were following him, his disciples. And the lesson, verse 9, the instruction, I tell you, this is a commandment for disciples. This is the part you already committed to obeying. Remember that just about 10 minutes ago? Where I said, you're disciples, you're going to do this, and everybody said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You, were very, you were very good. You didn't say, let's hear it first. You said, yes, on the front side, we will say yes to Jesus. Remember that? Your memory seems to be failing. Everybody Okay. Jesus said to me, his disciple, to you, his disciple, Bruce, cross point, 
Disciples in Huntington Beach, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, when the money gives out, those friends that you made, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What is Jesus telling you this? The best use for money on earth is to prepare a warm welcome for yourself in heaven. Did you catch that? Jesus says there is unrighteous money. In other words, money in this world that the people of this world who do not account for God know quite well how to use. The cleverness in this dishonest manager is this. When he was found out, he still knew how to use money so that we would have a place to go or a job to get. The con was this. I'm caught. And I can't very well work, and I'm too proud to beg. I'll cheat the boss one last time so that when he really finally fires me, people will be in my debt and be so grateful to me that they'll welcome me into the house and I'll keep on living as if nothing went wrong. And Jesus says to his disciples, People in the world are much smarter than you are. They know how to use money to secure their future. Here's the lesson. Hear it again. I tell you, you disciples, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, when your money gives out, when the money is no longer with you, those friends may receive you where? Into the eternal dwellings. In other words, you need to be as clever in your life on this earth with the money you have now. Again, the lesson is this. The best use for money on earth is to prepare a warm welcome for yourself in heaven. It doesn't mean you can buy your way in. It means that what you do, according to Jesus, what you do with money here matters there. Do you believe that? Jesus says the unrighteous wealth, he's contrasting the money of this world, which will fail, by the way. It does run out. Maybe you've noticed. <laughs> Runs out by the end of the month. It can be stolen away from you. It can be corrupted. You can run, unfortunately, into a con man like this. It can be gone in an instant. And Jesus says, you disciples need to imitate the shrewdness of the dishonest man. All he wanted to do was to use unrighteous wealth to prepare for himself a home here on earth. You can do better if you're as clever as he is. You can use money here and now to do a good deed for yourself and prepare a warm welcome for yourself in heaven. It's not the first time he said it. He's going to spell it out in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. Like that on the screen, please. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Did you hear that? Is that contrary to the way most of us live? It's a hard thing to obey because the natural human impulse is to pile it up as high as you can because you don't know what may come. And certainly the Bible commends both working and saving. That's all through the Scriptures, particularly the Proverbs. 
But Jesus says, if you only live for money here and now and for the impact you can have right now, you'll miss the better part. You'll act unlike the con man. You'll act foolishly. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't pile it up here. You could lose it. What are you supposed to do? But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just to check to make sure we're all on the same page. Where does Jesus say to store up your money? In heaven. And this provocative parable says, if you use unrighteous earthly money for heavenly purposes, someone will be there to welcome you when you arrive. That's a radical idea. There is no telling in the 55 years of this church how many thousands and thousands and thousands of people reached by the gospel of Christ in this community and overseas through our missionaries are already in heaven in part because of the giving of the people who call this church home. There will be reunions and rejoicing and rewarding for those faithful, generous givers that they did not expect and that they could not imagine because they never met those people. That's why in September we're having some missionaries come in. And they're going to tell you one or two notable stories of a difference that your mission giving specifically has made. But when you see someone baptized in this baptistry behind me, if you've supported the work of this church financially, you have a part in that. You may not know that person. You may not know how they came to Christ. You may not have been the one that explained the gospel to them, but you've helped sustain in part through your giving. It takes much else besides giving, but Jesus is talking here specifically about the best use of money. You've had a part of that, and you will share in the reward, and that is certainly part of what Jesus means when he says, when the money fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwelling. He's not talking about buying your way into heaven. He's talking about using money on earth to make a heavenly difference. Paul explained it as well, 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, someone will say, well, that lets me out. I don't have to read what follows. <laughs> and certainly, by our standards, very few of us are, by American 21st century billionaire standards, Hardly any of us or any of us are rich. But relative to first century standards, we're doing okay. I picked up 12 shirts from the dry cleaners yesterday. That is unimaginable luxury in the history of the world to have that much clothing. I've got a car sitting outside. It's five years old. It's dirty. But it... it gives me a, a level of comfort, safety, and flexibility that very few people in the world have ever experienced. So just read this and think that it might apply to you, okay? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, because that's what money does. And it doesn't take much, honestly, for most people to think they can take it from here. 
You remember when you got your first good job? And if that was a long time ago, do you realize how bad that job was in comparison, hopefully, to the one you have now? But the first time someone actually hired you and started giving you something that you thought, I can make it now, didn't that feel good? Didn't you feel proud? Yeah. Bought the Civic and strutted around. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it's incredible. That's what money does. It tends to make people forget God. Paul says, make sure, Timothy, you tell the rich not to do that, not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. There it is again because it could be taken away, but instead to set their hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Remind them that the things they enjoy come from God. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Here's where Paul's teaching is going to connect like a hand and a glove with what Jesus just taught in this provocative parable. To be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is what? Truly life. If they're generous here, it will make a difference there, and they will receive a reward there that is actual, real life. Newsflash, what all of these verses tell me is that money is seductive to us and unimpressive to God. That what we think is so vitally important is meaningless to Him and actually is the thing that in my pastoral observation most makes people's heart cold toward God. Generally speaking, in my missionary travels in particular, and that has continued in the United States because it's a human principle, the poor who know they're in trouble are much quicker to hear about God compared to the rich who already have it all figured out. What makes the difference when the rich encounter a problem that money can't solve? And there are such, have you noticed? Because we all die alike. Illness, injury, and death come for all alike. Paul is saying here that money may hold people captive in an illusion and they may miss because they love money and they trust money and they want to use it all here. They may miss what he calls truly life. In the words of Randy Alcorn, you can take it with you, but you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you. But according to Paul and Jesus, you can send it on ahead. You can provide riches for yourself in heaven, says Jesus. You can lay up treasure for yourself as a firm foundation, says Paul. They will welcome you someday into houses that will last forever, says Jesus. And then, just to make sure that we're not missing it, he steps out of the parable and does some very direct, punchy teaching. Look in verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in, a ver in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Holy. Catch that? Jesus is saying money's no big deal. Money's a small thing. 
but you must be faithful in it. That really sets our world on its head, doesn't it? Because money, like, that's, that's the thing, man. Half of our media, half of our entertainment, practically everything on the magazines at the grocery store checkout line has to do with wealth and power. Very simple, for instance. You may have heard two young royals decided they didn't want to be royals anymore and moved to Canada. Did you hear? Why did you hear? You're not even British. Why do you care? Oh, but we care. Why do we care? Because it's money, and it's beauty, and it's power. And Jesus warns, it will fail. Neither one of them will look that good for much longer. Not wishing anything on them, it's just that's the way that life works. The mirror tells me that every day. I've reached the age where my kids say, what happened? (laughs) That's the way it works. And Jesus says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. In other words, this little parable, this quick little parabolic saying, saying, if you can't be trusted with a small thing, you're certainly not going to be trustworthy with the big things. If, on the other hand, if you're trustworthy when someone gives you a little something, they're going to understand that you can be trusted with more. What's he talking about? He's talking about money. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the, what? True riches. Where are those true riches? In glory. All of these earthly riches are only a means to do the work of God, to make the kingdom of God invade the kingdom of this world. If only the children of light, the sons of light, will be as clever as their worldly counterparts. What Jesus is saying is this, the way you use money is a matter of faithfulness to God because He entrusted it to you. Understand this, Jesus is saying, if you cannot be trusted by God with the money and the resources He's already given you, He will not be foolish and give you even more. And you will miss your eternal reward, not your eternal salvation, but you will miss your eternal reward altogether because in the simple thing of earthly wealth, which to Jesus and to The Father is no big deal whatsoever. You proved yourself unfaithful. See, it's the most counterintuitive thing in the world. Christians think of generosity and stewardship of money, where they become not only earners but generous givers, as kind of the mountaintop of spiritual experience. And people who are really serious about God and very mature, perhaps after 42 years of following Jesus, they will grow into generous givers. And Jesus says, this is basic. This is a fundamental part. This is make-believe money. The real stuff is ahead of you waiting in glory. Verse 12, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? In other words, 
The faithful use of your wealth here will be the measure of your reward there. I'll teach this another time, but I just want to say it plainly because it's so undertaught. I've taught it before, but what Jesus is telling us here is something radical that the Bible says repeatedly, but most Christians ignore probably because we don't want to believe that it is so. Salvation is entirely by grace. Jesus paid it all. We just celebrated that and remembered that in communion. But the measure of impact and glory and the measure of you enjoying the reward that your faithfulness made here, that is not entirely by grace. That does not work out for everybody alike. The measure of your faithfulness here will determine your reward there. Randy Alcorn goes so far as to say that salvation is by grace, but rewards are most definitely by works. You ever heard that? It's right here. That's what he's talking about. That's why the apostles were told that they would sit on thrones. That's why Jesus commended the sacrificial giving of a widow who gave two tiny little coins and said that she had done much more than the wealthy men who had brought in fortunes. This is why Paul was so determined not to back off but to keep extending the gospel forward until they killed him. That's why he said he had his eye set forward on rewards and the crown which the Lord had promised him and all of those who loved his appearing. You can't take it with you. You can send it on ahead. And this is going to be one of the surprises in heaven. That people who were given very little but were extraordinarily faithful with it like so many Mexican Christians I met who lived hand to mouth but understood what Jesus was saying and since they had nothing to speak of on earth, they said, I might as well pile it up in heaven. What do we say? I've got so much here and so many bills and so much pressure, I can't afford to. And Jesus says, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? How much money does God own? All of it? Your whole savings account? Your pension too? Your retirement? It's all His? Mm -hmm. And you have it for a short time in your hands to determine what difference it will make and what good it will do. And wise Christians are as streetwise as the con man who said, I'm caught, but I'll use. I've got one more move to secure my life. Jesus says, be as clever as that guy. Be as street smart as a con man. And use your short life here to enjoy a reward there. Make sense? You believe it. <sighs> Yes, I believe it cognitively when it comes down to practical action. Maybe not. What if, as Christians did for centuries, what if the wiser move were to live as simply as possible, to give as generously as you could dare because of the savings secured by your simplicity, 
to win and disciple as many people to Christ as you could with the short time you're given to earn so that you could enjoy that reward and that fellowship for the rest of eternity. Would that be a good investment? Yes. Many people in this church understand it. Many poor Christians I've met on the mission field understand it. And they will be greatly rewarded. And the person of influence who had so much in this world, whose advice everybody sought because he was so obviously successful, the sharp executive, the woman who supervised dozens and hundreds of people whose ear everybody wanted and whose advice everybody sought because she was so obviously skillful at managing things in this world, by comparison, their reward might be tiny. And I just wonder, and I know I'm giving you some big concepts that I don't have some time to explain, but I wonder if at the judgment seat of Christ, when Jesus evaluates not the salvation of His disciples, but their obedience from the moment He saved them until the moment He called them home, I wonder if Jesus might say to some of us, why did you think I gave you all that? Why do you think I made you smart? Why do you think I allowed you to be born in the United States? Did you think all of that was for you? Will it happen? Yes. Because these verses contemplate that disciples will react with faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Listen to it again. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? In other words, if God can't trust you with money here, how will He reward you there? And here's the heart of the matter. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what? Money. Final teaching from Jesus. The way you use money shows who you really love. That's why it's such a battle. And money makes a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. Some of you know that. You've put yourself in such a difficult position that now money is your master, and it keeps you up at night. Others who are actually quite poor in financial terms in this world, they live free and confident because they've broken through to that simple understanding that what their father said was true, that he will honor those who honor him. And they've decided to be as generously as they dare with the little that they have, and they know that somehow everything will be provided and they will be greatly rewarded. Why does Jesus keep saying this? Because it's in the Gospel of Matthew too. Because all your life, the master of money will call out to you and say, trust me, serve me, I'll make your life amazing here. And Jesus says, no, trust God instead. Live simply, do good works, be rich in good deeds, be generous and ready to share, Paul said. Then you'll have a foundation for what is truly life. What am I trying to tell you? Simply this, the way you use money on earth makes a big difference in heaven. So get to storing it up. Don't miss your opportunity. 
Don't be a fool on earth. Be wise with heaven in view because, honestly, we don't have long. How long do you have? Nobody knows. One of the common mistakes in this area is when I hit this benchmark, when I get to this next thing, whatever that is, renting my own place, buying my own house, getting this car paid off, when I hit this thing, then I will start taking Jesus seriously. Then I'll be able to. You won't. Because in all of those choices, you will have been serving the master of money, and your heart will get in a groove of making it easier and easier to listen to money and the values of this world, and harder and harder to listen to the echoes and the music of heaven. Don't live for here. Don't live for this earth. Live to make a difference in heaven. Jesus, help us to hear you and obey you. I pray that whoever needs to hear this in all three services will take immediate action and move quickly to rearrange their affairs in whatever way is necessary. Make whatever choices regarding spending and saving and giving so that we truly may do the best and the most with the money we have here so that it will make an eternal difference there. Thank you, Father, that in your grace you have promised to reward us if we simply do what you say. You don't have to, but you're so good, you have told your disciples, Jesus, if you'll do what I'm commanding, not only will you be safe, you'll be rewarded. So give us the grace to trust you and the resolve to get started and do it today in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, folks. Love you.